following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. We will be reading from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you, I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. All right, so it is the third Sunday in the season of Lent, and uh, as most of you will know by now, we're observing Lent a little differently this year, um, and using this wonderful book as our starting point. This is a book called Wholehearted Faith by Rachel Held Evans, and um, we have encouraged you to get this book and read along with us uh, as we go through it. Uh, we have some discussion groups that are happening in the middle, middle of the week that you can uh, take as an opportunity to kind of debrief the stuff with each other. And then on Sundays, uh, the sermons are based using this as a starting point. Um, uh, we do have, I saw, I just checked, we have one last copy out there from the copies that we've bought. So if you would like to take this book home with you today and you can get there quick enough, um, it would be uh, yours for whatever you can afford. It, our cost is $15, but you can just take it if you can't afford that. Um, you can also get it on Amazon, but if you wanted one copy to take with you, today. We probably won't reorder any for, for here since we're about halfway through this already. Um, and by the way, as always, uh, you don't have to do the reading ahead of time. You can just come here uh, and soak it in, or as I call it, grad school. Um, <clears throat> uh, none of my professors are, are watching right now, I hope. Um, if they are, it's not your class, it's the other one. But... Um, this week's chapter is chapter 6, and it is entitled, as you can see, Jonathan Edwards is not my homeboy. Um, this is a reference to two things. It's, it's a reference to uh, a t-shirt, um, which is sort of, was a, it had a, a slogan on it that said, Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy, which was, as most parts of Christian pop culture, derivative of regular pop culture, something else that happened, but you don't really need to know all the, all the background to it. But it's also a reference to a famous Puritan preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who gave a pretty famous and I would say extremely graphic sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I need to do a quick poll uh, to find out whether my high school was really weird or not. <laughs> Did anybody else read this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in your public high school? Okay. I am not kidding. I'm not kidding. 
Um, I did, and I think actually in my school it was assigned in two different years. I'm pretty sure I was exposed to it more than one time just in high school. Uh, and to be fair to them, it is a fabulous example of figurative language. It is really good on um, explaining how metaphor can be used. Um, so if you, if you didn't get it assigned in high school and you haven't read the chapter yet, I'm going to read to you this little passage from this text. Um, tune it out as needed for your own spiritual health, but this is what Jonathan Edwards says in this sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. I agree, Dan. Um, would you like to give the closing prayer and we can all go home? <laughs> they, they would happily slow jam your prayer. Um, mm. Mm. Okay, so <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you chose to give me a one-word answer to that, that passage because I'm going to actually ask people to do that. Um, whether you read this in school, read it in the book, or are hearing it now for the first time, um, what is a one-word reaction or response that you have? It. How does it hit you? How does it make you feel? Go ahead and sadistic. Okay. What else? Reject. Mm-hmm. Loathsome. Yeah. Condemning. Condemning. Disgusting or disgusted? Which one did you say, Clarabelle? Did you? Disgusting. Disgusting. Yeah. Thank you. Manipulative. Uh huh. Reformed. Atheism. Okay. Yep. Um, Jonathan Edwards probably made converts in both directions. Converts in both directions. Yeah. Thank you. Um, now, if you did read chapter 6 of Wholehearted Faith, you, you know that this teaching can be internalized and result in what I would call exceedingly unhealthy and uh, disordered sense of self-worth. Um, you will remember, if you read it, the whole um, answer to the question, how are you doing, being better than I deserve, with a big long list of all the things that you actually do deserve, very much in the school of Jonathan Edwards. right? And the t-shirt that I referenced earlier was <clears throat> from a particular type of theologian who really is into this particular type of theology who put the t-shirt on that said Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy. Now, the way that that was derivative from pop culture is that, who was it? Was it Lady Gaga or somebody was wearing a t-shirt that said Jesus is my homeboy? I think it's extremely ironic or something that somebody would be so caught up in the theology of Jonathan Edwards that they would replace the word Jesus with the words Jonathan Edwards and put it on a t-shirt. <clears throat> Probably pretty low self-awareness in that situation, if you would ask me. 
Now, as always, we have a broad range of people in the room and listening online or hearing the podcast later. Some of you will already have been intimately familiar with this way of thinking and this theology, and others will be hearing about this, uh, Rachel calls it, hair-singeing, soul-scarring teaching for the first time. Um, but the idea that, that God's wrath is somehow both the cause of and solution to all of life's problems, uh, including our need for salvation, is something that I want to briefly address. I do have to go on a bit of a theological aside here. This is not supposed to be a very theological sermon. I have other things that I want to say, but I do think it's important, at least briefly, to address some of that theology and how you might kind of replace it with something that I think is more healthy and true to uh, the biblical vision. Um, now, unlike most of the times when I say that's a sermon for another time and then I never preach that sermon, on this occasion I'm going to say it's a sermon for another time and I've already given it. I've preached entire series, I think more than one series, about what is actually called atonement theology. It's just the, the way we think theologically about how Jesus' work saves us. It's a big part of Christian theology um, and one that has been the subject of much debate. Um, but this idea... <clears throat> That God has so much wrath towards humankind and our sin that God would uh, send Jesus, God's Son, to earth to die on the cross and be the recipient of God's wrath in our place is kind of like a very common way of describing the good news, doesn't sound very good to me, but the good news of Jesus and of the gospel. Um, and if you need to know the fancy term, it's called penal substitutionary atonement. <laughs> Um, feel free never to use that phrase again. But here are several problems that I see with it. Number one, uh, as you can see, it disintegrates the Trinity. It separates God the Father from God the Son and puts them in completely different spaces and, in fact, completely oppositional positions to each other. Right Now, not that we get too far into the business of condemning heresy here at Artisan Church, but the idea that you could take persons of the Trinity and separate them from each other and put them at odds against each other would clearly qualify as a heresy in the classical teaching of the church. All right. If you don't care about that, and I don't blame you, here's another thing. This concept of God's wrath being the, the, the thing that we... Uh, first experience of God and which Jesus saves us from on the cross is entirely absent from the preaching of the apostles in the New Testament. It never occurred to them as they were going around the entire known world sharing the good news of Jesus to preach on God's wrath in that way. Here's another one in my view, and I don't think this is a stretch, it is fundamentally incongruent with some of the most important, like, two to three word teachings that we receive in the Bible. By the way, sometimes those little short phrases are the most important things. Those are like the high order things. They're the most simple and important concepts. And, you know, the longer, more drawn out ones, you can save those for later when you're ready for more advanced, uh, complex thinking. But the simple two word, three word things are the most important ones, and we try to make everything so difficult. And Jesus wept. Right. How many of you memorized John eleven thirty five? <laughs> I memorized that because it counts as memorizing a Bible verse, and it's only two words. But here's some other ones. God is love. 
or do not fear, which literally occurs hundreds of times in various forms in the Bible, including all around almost every circumstance of the life of Jesus on earth, from his birth and its announcement, to his teachings, to his death, to his resurrection and appearance to the apostles. Do not be afraid. Over and over and over again. And I actually had this idea, which I I canceled out, um, of making one of the readings just be like dozens of occasions of do not fear in the Bible. It would be like a, 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 a mashup reading. Maybe we'll do that someday. But lastly, for now anyway, and I think this might be one of the best reasons why you can let go of that view of the atonement and try to replace it with something else, is that there's so much you can replace it with. There are dozens of other ways that the authors of the Bible describe both our need for salvation and how God saves us, how Jesus' work on the cross saves us. Passages that use far more imaginative and restorative and inspiring metaphors and images. And it is all metaphorical and image-based, isn't it? We do not have language powerful enough to describe our salvation literally, whatever that would even mean. And so the biblical authors have always resorted to poetic language in describing and explaining it. That is not a deficit in the scriptures, by the way, in my view. That is an asset of the scriptures, in my view. That all of that poetic language is there. That it's there for us to wrestle with and sort out and be challenged by and be confused by and disagree on. Now, one of those metaphors, those images in the Bible is this courtroom idea where a crime has been committed that, that needs to be accounted for, um, that we're guilty, and that Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve on himself so that we don't have to bear it. That is embellished, but it is in the Bible. Nobody invented that. Jonathan Edwards did not invent this, this criminal um, courtroom metaphor. It's there. But there are so many others. Uh, a seminary professor, professor who I know compiled a whole big document. I've actually printed it out right here. You can look at it after if you want. I'm not going to read it to you. But it's a collection of all kinds of different metaphors and images used for God's salvation in the Bible, right? There's images about liberation, being set free. There's images about uh, cleansing, being made clean. There's images about change of loyalty, whether um, sometimes it's like being purchased on a slave market and, and then set free. Sometimes it's about a change of citizenship. There's metamorphosis images of being completely transformed. There's images about relationships like adoption or marriage. Uh, There's all kinds of stuff about the economy. There's economic imagery around this. There's images of victory in battle, that, that God has won this battle over the powers of evil. There's images about healing. And yes, there are images about the penal system and, and legal stuff. But that's just one tiny pixel of the picture. But again, uh, as important as it will be for some of you to have the resources to rethink and unwind that particular sliver of Christian theology which has affected you so deeply, that is not the main point that I want to make today. What I sense, um, and I do think this is a pastoral discernment for what it's worth. I don't play that card very often, but this is what I sense as your pastor, that the greater need here at Artisan is 
And it comes right from something that Rachel says in the book. She's um, reacting to the research of Brene Brown around shame, right? Um, and if you haven't read this book, you might be familiar with Brene Brown's work anyway. But the difference between shame and guilt is what Rachel's talking about in this chapter in part, right? Guilt says, I did something bad. I'm guilty of that. And shame says that I am bad. Do you see the enormous difference between those two ideas? And what Rachel says when she's unpacking that idea is this, and I'm going to quote her here from page 75. Can we deal honestly with our sins without internalizing shame? Does our belief system require that we see ourselves as nothing more than loathsome insects, deserving only to be swept by tsunami waves into the fires of hell? Or can we, too, engage the world from a place of worthiness? Now, that is powerful. And to put it in my own words for us here at Artisan, can we, here at Artisan Church, recover a real sense of conviction about our actions and the harm that we have done to others and ourselves without bringing in that whole additional piece of traumatizing ourselves or re-traumatizing ourselves with what I would say is a deeply destructive model of shame-based religion. One of the things that I think is really important for us to do together as a community is to find the space that exists between we are all loathsome worms bound for an eternity of torment from the moment of our birth, on one hand, and nothing matters, so do whatever you want, on the other. Now, the thing is, those are both caricatures. And if you heard me say those two things, this hand and that hand, and you thought only one of them was an exaggeration and kind of unfair, that might be an area where you are being called to exercise some empathy, potentially even for people who have wounded you, which I know is deep, difficult work. And I don't mean to be flippant about it. But I do believe there's a great deal of space between these two extremes. And I believe that our community is called to find that space. In so many ways, um, by God's grace, Artisan has been a, a third way on really difficult things. And I think this could be one of them for us. What is the third way that isn't shame-based, destined for hell, miserable worm, and also isn't, there's no consequences for my actions and it doesn't matter, and God's grace is good enough to cover it all so I don't really have to work on anything. So here's my pastoral charge to you today. It comes in two parts. Part one is this. God is love. You are loved. Nothing you have ever done or ever could do is enough to separate you from God. There is no reason for fear. Do not be afraid. I want you to hear this as many times as you need it before you move on. You have no reason to fear. 
do not be afraid. That's part one. And here's part two. Some of the things that you have done in your life have caused serious harm to yourself and to other people. People who are beloved children of God. Some of your ways of being continue to make you complicit in systems of inequality, oppression, and dehumanization. Did you hear that part two had two parts? And I know this is true of you because I know it's true of me, and I believe that it's true of all people. And here is the truly, deeply, beautiful, inspiring, almost magical reality that is available to you if you are ready for it. That the first idea can and does and ought to lead you to the second idea. In other words, rather than it being a contradiction to say, God is love, you are loved, do not be afraid, and also you have caused harm and are complicit in systems, and you need to correct that in your life. Rather than that being a contradiction, in fact, in a healthy, integrated spirituality, it is my belief that the first one actually leads to the second one. That God's love and forgiveness and welcome embrace is the actual thing that leads us to true repentance, which is inner transformation that leads us to a real sense of conviction about what we have done and about what we have left undone, how we have not loved God with our whole hearts, how we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. That leads us to a sense of conviction about the ways that we have been complicit in systems of inequality, oppression, and dehumanization. After all, Romans 2 tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Not God's wrath, but God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Not to, uh, not caring about anything anymore, but to repentance. And so here's my assignment for you, those of you who like church homework. <laughs> Some of you come up to me after service every day and you're like, that was a great sermon, but could you have given us more homework? <laughs> Nobody ever said that to me. <laughs> but I would say to you this, if, if the things that I've said uh, by, by some miracle have stirred something in your heart, here's something that I suggest might be of use to you that you can do with it. The assignment is based on the two themes that I just presented to you. So, especially for those of you who have been shaped and formed by the Jonathan Edwards theology and view of humanity, especially for those of you who've been shaped by that, my encouragement is for you to meditate on some different scripture. And when I say meditate on different scripture, I mean read it over and over again. Let it seep into your being the way that that horrible Theology has unfortunately seeped into your being. And I, I recognize that that has taken years and decades for some of us. 
I hope it won't take years and decades for it to be replaced. If you want a place to start, I've pointed you to some of them with some of today's readings. Do you remember Isaiah 43, which Scott read right before I started here? Thus says the Lord, the one who created you, the one who formed you, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you are mine. Do not fear, for I am with you. Bring my sons from far away, my daughters from the end of the earth, every child who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, every child. That could be something that you could try to soak into your being. That's from Isaiah 43. Or you could go to 1 John chapter 3, which I read to you as the words of assurance following the confession of sin. Love has been perfected among us in this. That we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Did you hear that? Not the, as Dan said, bullshit from Jonathan Edwards about the day of judgment. But that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Why? Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. I have a friend who writes hymns. We've done some of his hymns here. And he made the great observation and even wrote, the, wrote that word into a hymn in reverse. That, that fear can cast out love. It's an inversion of what's in this biblical text, but it's so true and so unfortunate. Perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. Boy, if you could take just a few words with you from this sermon today, I hope it's those. What would it look like to meditate on those every day this week? There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And then, when you're finished with part one, which by the way, you never will be, when you've worked on part one for a little while and you've begun to meditate on and internalize some of those other ideas about God's love for you, then you can start to ask yourself a very important question, which is this. What is it that I ought to do because of that love? Notice I didn't use the S word. I mean, should. <laughs> what is it that I ought to do because God loves me so much? What is it that I ought to do that God's love is so big that I have no fear about this life or the next? What is it then that I will do with that fact? And now I hope that you can begin to notice and sense how God's kindness can lead to repentance. Because here's the thing. If you are motivated to do quote-unquote good by fear of punishment, the good that you do will not be good or it won't be for very long. That is a very shallow well from which to draw your resources for doing good. But God's love is an endless fountain. It is a spring that comes up from the ground and never stops. And so you can draw on that 
as your source for doing good. And when you grow weary and frustrated and discouraged by the brokenness of the world and how pointless it all seems and how little a difference it seems to be making, you can return to God's love and there will be more there for you to draw on. So my friends, resist the temptation to fuel your spirituality with the impoverished view of fear and wrath. And instead, open yourselves. May you receive it now that there is no fear in love, that perfect love casts out fear, and that God's kindness leads us not to apathy, but to repentance. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.